Today's sermon text is Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, if you are somewhat confused that today we're going to continue our study on the attributes of God, you wouldn't be wrong in your confusion. We were supposed to actually conclude that last week, and Daniel was going to preach this week on Hebrews 10 and not to neglect gathering together, and then I was going to follow that week with us starting off with Advent. But if you're a member here of Christ Covenant Church, you would have known that the Harmon family has had an emergency uh, that's taken them down to Georgia, and so I'd encourage you to continue to pray for them. And we thought it'd be best, instead of starting Advent and then pausing and then starting it again, that we would just continue our study on the attributes of God with studying His faithfulness. We've looked at His goodness, we've looked at His sovereignty, we've looked at His wisdom, and then today we're going to look at His faithfulness. And I hope as we've been studying the attributes of God, you've you've enjoyed it. I hope when you first heard, maybe it felt like this was going to be a seminary classroom and this would be head knowledge on who God is and whatnot, but I think you'll see that as we've been studying it, it's actually have real practical application points for how we live Monday through Friday, how we engage in our marriages, how we engage in raising our children, because it's in the study of the attributes of God that we learn about who He is, who we are, and how he sees us and how we relate to him. And so it's a wonderful study, and uh, I'm excited to continue it in the faithfulness of God and hope that you will be refreshed by this study. Now, one of the first results of the fall is blame shifting, is shifting the blame and pointing to someone else as the responsible one for the sin. And we see this most clearly with Adam and Eve, right? When... um, they disobeyed and they sinned against God. Wow, I am like coming in hot here, Travis. I'm sorry. Uh, when they sinned and disobeyed against God, it might be the way I shaved last night. Um, I may have not got close enough. Um, but anyway, in the, in the fall, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned and disobeyed against God, uh, immediately when God approaches them in the garden, they shift blame. Adam goes, it's not me, God, that did this. It was Eve, the woman you gave me. And Eve wants to point the blame to the serpent and say, it was the serpent that you gave me, the result of this sin. And we quickly shift the blame. Now, I have found that I see this example played out in many different areas of life, but I see it often with the students. 
Um, for some reason, parents don't feed our kids, and when they come for student ministry, they are extremely hungry, and they are ready to eat whatever snack is put in front of them. It doesn't matter if it's stale graham crackers or if it's a luscious bowl of goldfish. They are ready to dive into snack time, and they'll eat these snacks, and then when we transition to the next activity, we'll say, all right, it's time to clean up all the trash around you, and then we will move on, and uh, inevitably, you'll look over at the boys, and underneath their chairs is piles and piles of food, just crumbs everywhere. It's, it's an absolute mess. And we'll look at them and say, hey, you need to clean up the mess under your chair. And one of the first things they do over and over again is say, that's not my mess, that's his mess. And they quickly shift the blame and they point to one another. No one wants to be responsible in front of the ladies in the youth group that they're the messy eater. And they shift the blame. Now, I, I know that's a simple and silly illustration, but I think we all see this play lives in other ways. I think we see it play out because it's our natural bit to shift the blame, to point to others. Um, And so I'm going to grab this mic right here. So our natural bit and shift is to point the blame to other people. And so when we point the blame to other people, we really are showing that we are not responsible for our sin. We excuse it. We say, well, if this event wouldn't have happened to me, I wouldn't have fell into this sin. If my spouse had only treated me this way, or if I'd only got this many hours of sleep, I wouldn't have acted out that way. And we quickly start to shift and point the blame onto others. But I think eventually we stop pointing to one another when life circumstances happen, and we start to point the blame to God. If a job loss occurs... If we receive a frightening medical report, if we have a wayward child, if the reality of life does not match the aspirations of life, if a loved one that we care for dies, inevitably we start to shift the blame to God. And we do it because we recognize that as we've studied, He is sovereign. He does reign over all things. There is no maverick molecule in this entire universe. God reigns and sustains and is in control of all things. He's the sovereign one. And so at the end of the day, when these hardships and afflictions of life occur, of course, we have to go to the one who's sovereign over it. And if we recognize that he's sovereign and these trials and afflictions come, we begin to question, God, are you good? Do you do good? We inevitably, and in particularly, Question, God, are you faithful? You see, C.S. Lewis once said, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. That is our natural bent as sinful creatures is to question and to blame God and put him in the dock. Now, over the past few weeks, as we've been studying the attributes of God, we've followed a pattern of what is it, where do we see it, and how do we respond We're going to somewhat follow that pattern, except inverted, because today we're studying a narrative, and I think the narrative tells us the story, and then we can better define it. So we're going to to ask, where do we see God's faithfulness in Exodus 17? What is God's faithfulness, and how do we respond? 
Now, in Exodus 17, when we hop in this story, there is a narrative that has been going on. If you will recall that God's people have become enslaved to Egypt and to Pharaoh, they are slaves to them and they are bound to this great power and they call out to God and God hears their calling and he raises up a deliverer for them in the person of Moses. And so Moses is raised up and Moses goes to Pharaoh and Moses tells Pharaoh to let the people go and we know that Pharaoh's heart is hardened and Pharaoh does not want to let the people go and so God displays his glory and his power over the Egyptians gods and over showing the whole uh, realm of Egypt and Israel who the true Lord is who the true God is and so he does it through plagues and we see this culminate in the final plague of the Passover where a lamb is slain, and the blood of the lamb is put on the doorpost of God's people. For when the angel of judgment or destruction comes, he will pass over any of the houses that have the blood of this lamb. And so God's people are spared, and when this angel of death comes, he, just, he kills the firstborn son of every Egyptian. To where the text says, from the servants' quarters all the way up to Pharaoh's household, not a house Not a house was spared to where there was a great cry in Egypt. And so God's people would have heard and they would have been there and would have seen the power of God when they woke up that night and could hold their firstborn son when the Egyptians could not hold their firstborn son. So God displayed his power. And then that led to them being let go and they are heading towards the promised land being led by God. And uh, this just gets to this magnificent event in the Old Testament where Pharaoh decides to change his mind and he wants to go after and recapture and enslave the Israelites. And he chases them down and they're led right to this Red Sea where they're at an impasse where they have an ocean in front of them and they have Pharaoh's army bearing down on them. And then God does the miraculous of splitting the sea and they walk across on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army comes in after them, the waters of judgment crash on them to where God's people in chapter 15 see God act in a marvelous way and they naturally respond with a song of praise. Their enemy has been destroyed. They've been delivered from slavery and God has saved them. And then that begins their journey. They start to go to the promised land, and after a few days, they get thirsty. And they find water eventually, but it's unclean water. It's bitter. They can't drink it. And they cry out to God, and God provides them. He tells Moses, throw a log in the water, and it becomes clean. And they're able to drink it. It tastes sweet. It's enjoyable. Well, they have their water taken care of, but naturally we we need some food as well. So a few days later, they're marching, and they're hungry, and they complain and grumble against God, and they're so hungry that this is literally what they tell God. We wish that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They are so hungry that they said it would be better to be a slave than to be out here. At least in Egypt, we had good food to eat. And yet God, in his graciousness, does not wipe them out, but rather, he says, look. And he brings them quail that literally fall before them, and they get to eat meat. And then not only that, he provides for them when they wake up in the morning, they can collect flour and they can create this bread that's like a wafer that doesn't just taste stale, but it actually tastes like honey and it's sweet and it's good to them. So God has provided for them the water, he's provided for them food. And so in Exodus 17, we're going to see the same type of event, but yet with a twist. So if you look with me at verse 1, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. 
And they camped at Rephardim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, we would be remiss if we flew past this verse. They are following and being led by the Lord. They go to the place where there is no water by the Lord's leading. It's not Moses who's leading them. Moses hasn't failed to download the latest version of Apple Maps, and they're confused and lost. It's none of that. Rather, it is God who's led them to a place where there's no water. Now, God is the sovereign one. Did he know there would be no water there? Of course. And so it's important to note that as we walk through this text because it sets the backdrop for the rest of how we understand this. So it's God who leads them to the trial. It's God who leads them to the place where there's no water to drink. Now in verses 2 through 4, we see the people respond, and we see them respond with unfaithfulness. It says, that therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for the water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, that our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, they are at a real point of where they think they are going to die from thirst. This is a serious life or death matter, um, and it's beginning to, to cloud their judgment because they're so thirsty and they're longing so much for a cup of water. They're not in a place where they can just start to dig and there's water. There's not a local sheets they can go to. They are extremely thirsty and longing for God to provide water for them. And it says that they grumbled against the Lord. Now, I think this causes us a, a moment to pause. Like, this is an intense trial to walk through. Now, all of us have walked through various different trials, but uh, one of the things that clouds our judgment so quickly is just the human nature of wanting something, whether it's you really need sleep or you really need food or you really need water, and they think they are going to die where they're charging Moses with, you're going to kill our children. Now, there is a difference, though, in this text between grumbling and lamenting. See, God has brought them to a place that of course, they should naturally be calling out to the Lord, but they've fallen into the sin of grumbling and complaining. And if you sit here and think, well, that's a bit harsh. I mean, they don't have any water to drink. Of course, they should be bringing up accusations or they should be challenging or questioning God. See, that's where it becomes sin, though. It's all a matter of the heart if you were to make a distinction between grumbling and complaining or lamenting. For when one does not trust God, when one is dissatisfied with God, you stumble into a sin of complaining and doubting his sovereignty. And that's what they're doing here. They have a legitimate need, but they've fallen into sin by complaining to God. Whereas with a lament, as we see in Psalm 13, when a circumstance is occurring, there's still a posture in the heart of humility and dependence upon God. The psalmist writes, How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The psalmist is just crying out to God, How long must I suffer? Israel's not doing this. They are complaining and grumbling and charging God with unfaithfulness. But yet in Psalm 13, he makes the turn. In verse 5, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. See, they model for us an unfaithfulness of complaining and grumbling, but we see the response should have been a calling out to God, God, how long shall we thirst? But God, I will trust you that you will provide for me. And we see this model so clearly in Christ at the garden. 
when he knew he was going to face the full wrath of God. And he called out to God, will you let this cup pass? Yet not my will, but your will be done. A submission to the sovereignty and the wisdom and the goodness of God. That's the difference between complaining and lamenting. But not only do they fall into the sin of complaining, they fall into the sin of spiritual amnesia. I mean, they've literally forgot how good God is. We're not in the part of the story where they've been wandering for 40 years and they're beginning to question, well, God, where have you been? It's not like this is the generation who's not seen God work. They have literally just seen God display his magnificent and marvelous power over Egypt. I mean, they saw an ocean split and they walked across on dry ground. And then they saw that ocean destroy their enemies. They get to look at their firstborn son and see that he's still alive. And they can remember the cries of the Egyptians when they lost their firstborn son. They have all of those things. And then they had just recently where they had unclean water made clean. They had quail they could eat. They've been provided for over and over again. And yet see how quickly when the trial and affliction comes, they have spiritual amnesia. They forget who God is. They even say Moses to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? And when they complain and they quarrel, Moses tries to guide them back to God. And he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? That should have been a trigger for them. Yeah, the Lord's the one sovereign over this. But rather, they keep digging on in, ready to go after Moses. They've forgotten who God is. And just let this be a side note for us. This is why we need the church. This is why we need to regularly gather to remind one another from the scriptures and from songs and from conversations and for praying to one another that even when we're walking through a trial or even when we're going through the doldrums of life, that we need to encourage one another to press on, to remember who God is. We see in this text that there was nobody who rose up who said, guys, do you not remember his faithfulness? Do you not remember he's the Lord? He is good. It did not occur. And so we see with Israel here, their unfaithfulness. Now, it gets to the point where they want to kill Moses. And Moses rightly responds, God, what do you want me to do? They're about ready to stone me. And we would think by verse 5 through 7, with God's response, that he would, at this point, he's shown his faithfulness over and over again, that he would just eradicate the people, that he would bring his judgment and justice. But rather, in verses 5 through 7, we see what is none other than marvelous grace. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 5, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. Now, this text is charged with legal overtones. When uh, it says, why do you quarrel with the Lord? That word for quarrel, and then when Moses says, why do you test the Lord? These words, what the people are doing, is they, they are bringing a legal suit against God. They are questioning his faithfulness. They are questioning, in particular, his covenant faithfulness. Will he keep his promises or not? And in their challenge of his faithfulness, we see that a trial is being set up with the witnesses of the elders of Israel coming. We see that God will be the one who will stand trial, that what will be brought to him is the staff of judgment, that God will be the one who will be struck to see if he is faithful or not. God has decided in his goodness that instead of wiping out the people, he says, I will show you my faithfulness by standing on the rock at Horeb. 
And we know that when God goes to stand on this rock at Horeb, that Moses is called to lift the staff and to strike it. And you can imagine the intensity of the moment. Moses here is about to lift the staff and strike the rock. And if water does not gush out, God is not faithful. But if water does gush out, he is the faithful covenant-keeping God. And you can see the intensity of this legal moment even when people were ready to bring judgment on Moses, right? They were ready to stone him, which would have been a capital offense, which he would have been committed of murder, right? So they're thinking, if we're going to die, we'll go ahead and charge Moses. And so Moses is, I'm sure, extremely nervous as he begins to lift this staff. If water doesn't come gushing out, I'm going to die. But most importantly, God will not be a faithful God. Moses lifts the staff. And when he strikes the rock, the text says, well, you would think it would say, and water gushed out. Water was everywhere. It overflowed. But I love that the text doesn't even have to go and say that water came gushing out. Now, if you're one of those who are nervous, like, well, John, did it actually come out? I'm a little concerned. It doesn't say here in the text. Let me tell you, the Psalms give us very good grounding for this. In Psalm 105.40, they asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. So when Moses struck that rock to question God's faithfulness, when the rock was struck with judgment, water gushed out demonstrating God's faithfulness. In Psalm 78, 15 through 16, it says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So, of course, God in his faithfulness, when the rock was struck, not just a little trinkle of water came out, but it flooded as like rivers or as from the depths of the ocean, water came gushing out. And just as a side note, if you are concerned, thinking, is this the same thing that Moses dealt with that ended up him not going to the promised land? This is an entirely different account. In, in Numbers 20, uh, Moses is told, um, the people are thirsty again, and Moses is told to speak to the rock, and water will come out. And instead, Moses, in his disobedience, strikes the rock twice, and that's why he can't enter the promised land. So this is a different account that happens earlier. So God answers in this moment with his faithfulness by water gushing out. And the people, you can imagine, drinking that water and tasting of God's faithfulness and remembering, yes, the Lord is among us. And this is why in the Old Testament, there's such a rejoicing over the rock. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's how the rock is described. And so we see here, God's people question his faithfulness. And in his kindness, instead of bringing judgment and justice on them after he's shown his patience over and over again, rather he says, I will go and I'll face the judgment. And my faithfulness will be tested. And in that trial, the water gushes out. Now, I would contend with you that this story should certainly stir our affections for Christ. It should certainly, it's not for Christ, it should certainly stir our affections for who God is, right? But I would, I would argue, I would argue, though, that there's two questions that are remaining. And I think the first question with this story is, it has a happy ending. 
Like, they needed a provisional need met. They needed a material, physical need to be met. And they're questioning God's faithfulness. And in this story, God provides it for them. So isn't it much easier to say God is faithful when they get to sit and drink of the water? But for some of us, we're walking through a trial. For some of us, we will walk through a trial. And the physical need may be withheld. The physical provision may not come. And if it does not come, how can we still say God is faithful? Because in this text, of course, it's exciting and it's something we want to rejoice over. But they got their physical need met. And I haven't. And the second thing that I think is lacking or makes this story incomplete is that as the Christian, we step back and we say, how can this story fully display God's faithfulness? Because the story of Exodus is is bound within a greater story. You see, when we are to question God's faithfulness, or we are to ask God, are you faithful? Are you good? Exodus is within a bigger story. Because see, God had made a promise that he bound himself to that is in seed form uh, spread throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it's found in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin against God, and when God confronts them and brings the judgment on the man and the woman, and when he tells the woman, from your seed will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. It is a promise by God that he has bound himself saying, a human will come from you, the woman. And this human, this seed, will crush Satan, the serpent, the one who brought about death and destruction. So this seed will come and destroy death and destruction and undo all the works that Satan has done. And that's the promise that God has bound himself to. And then that promise slowly becomes clearer and clearer as the Old Testament is revealed. And we see it get a little bit clearer when God calls Abraham. And he says, from you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed And he says, I'm binding myself to Abraham from his seed, that same seed in Genesis 3. And even in Exodus chapter 2, when God, there were many people groups who were enslaved at that time, but yet Israel called out to God. And why did God hear them? Because they're special or because they're talented? It says, he heard their cries and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the very fact that they've been delivered from slavery is because God remembered his promise. And then this covenant becomes clearer and clearer of God's faithfulness as we're longing all throughout the Old Testament for a Messiah. And even with David, he's promised that they'll come from David a seed that will be a king who will reign and his throne will be forever and ever. And he will be the one who um, all the nations will submit to. He will be the eternal king. And so in the Old Testament, there is this longing for the ultimate question of God's faithfulness is, will he redeem his people finally and fully? Will he answer his promise to crush Satan? Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you're turning there in in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, God is um, warning the people for context not to fall into idolatry. He's warning them not to indulge in evil sin. And in chapter 10, he's going to give them example for their instruction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this. 
For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So pause right here. It's very evident what generations he's referring to. He's giving us a historical marker. It's the Moses generation, a generation that these events happened in real time, in real space, a historical event. So they were under Moses. They were baptized through the water and through the sea. And just in case we're a little confused, verse 3, and they all ate the same spiritual food, which would have been the manna, right? But look at verse 4. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, the ultimate test of God's faithfulness is would he keep his promise? Now, Paul here is very clear and very explicit on who was struck, who was the rock. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a minute, my mind is being blown right now. You're telling me that there is some form of Christ in the Old Testament? Now, a couple things. First of all, Theologically, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So it wasn't like he became and existed once the incarnation happened, but rather he is fully God as the second person of the Trinity, and he has always existed. And John lays this out very clear with that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's always existed, and so he's always been now, how that mystery plays out and how that looks in the Old Testament, uh, A, I don't have time in this sermon to do it, and B, I think that's a fantastic question for our elders to handle and have Q&A, so feel free to just question them later on how all that plays out. But we know for sure that he's always existed, and then it's at the incarnation that he adds humanity to his divinity. As John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when the Christian looks at Exodus 17 and says it's incomplete, I think the Christian's absolutely right. Because God's faithfulness is still questioned. Because as Jesus taught, this generation, they ate the manna, they drank the water, but they still died. There's a begging question of, God, will you be faithful? And Paul tells us in the most explicit way that the one who was struck with judgment was Christ. And the ultimate answer of God's faithfulness is, will he keep his promises? Has he heard us? is in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what we look forward to with this Christmas season coming up, is that one has come to save us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. If you remember their cry, they said, is the Lord among us or not? He has come. It's Emmanuel. And Jesus Christ perfectly was faithful for us. He never had a wayward thought. He never sinned against God. Rather, he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness for our sake. He was perfect and he was faithful all throughout his life. And even when he went on trial for our disobedience and for our sin, and even when he was put on the cross and he was facing the ridicule from men that he created, and when he was facing the wrath of God, when he was drinking the full cup of wrath, and in that moment he could have stopped it all, he could have called down a legion of angels, but rather he was faithful and he completed the work on the cross to accomplish for us redemption and forgiveness of sins in the person of Jesus Christ. He demonstrated his faithfulness. 
and the great trial by ordeal when Jesus is struck with judgment and he's dead and he's buried, is, is, is he really who he says he is? And we know that when he was raised from the grave, everything that he said was solidified and made true. All of the promises of God, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus Christ was faithful for us. So when we think, what is the faithfulness of God? Now that we've seen this story, now that we see the whole picture, what is the faithfulness of God? The faithfulness of God is that he would fulfill and keep his word. But his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable faithfulness is finalized, is made full in the person of Jesus Christ. He would not be a faithful God unless Christ came and did the work that he promised. And he did. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this good news? Well, for the believer, I would encourage you to recognize that although the physical may not be met, that as you walk through trials in this life, as you face intense affliction, and as you begin to question, God, where are you in my life? God, where are you with this wayward child? Where are you with this medical report? Where are you with the circumstances of my life that are spinning out of control? God, I need to know that you're faithful. If he does not answer with the physical or material need there, you can rest assured that he is answered in the person of Christ. As Paul writes, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you have forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. You've been adopted and you're a son and daughter of the great king. Let that sustain you and be an anchor as you face the trials that we know God will lead us through. He's the sovereign one who will, but he's faithful. But also for the believer, be reminded of the already not yet. That God has been faithful to accomplish his promises and yet we still wait for Christ to return. We celebrate his first coming here at Christmas, and we know that he was faithful and accomplished all of his works, and we're going to celebrate his second coming. We know that he will be faithful to come and bring about his kingdom. And so for the believer, keep your eyes on Christ, for he will return as he was faithful in his life and works. He'll be faithful to come again. And for the unbeliever, he is a faithful God who will by no means acquit the guilty. Israel, in this chapter in Exodus 17, they're an example to us because they did not enter into God's rest. They tasted of his goodness. They enjoyed God's presence. But they were the generation that rebelled against God and they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. So let that be a warning for you if you've enjoyed church, if you enjoy being around the people of God, if you enjoy some of the moral application from sermons and whatnot. If you do not have faith in Christ, he will be faithful to bring his judgment on you. And I would encourage you, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, to do so, for he is faithful and just to hear us when we call out to him. So this Thanksgiving, as you're around the table, let us be thankful that God is faithful. Let's take a moment and thank him for his faithfulness.